Hello, Erica. Hello, Stephen. So we've just watched uh, episode two of The Claws of Axos. Mm-hmm. I feel like one episode at a time is a good good pace for me for this story. I'm still I, I'm enjoying it, but like it's not it's not one of those ones where I'm like, yeah, we got to watch the next episode. I, it's just it's a fun little capsule of Doctor Who. I like it. I like the story. It's bonkers, crazy, psychedelic, and the music's crazy, and it's 1971. It does. It does seem like it uh, appeals to your sensibilities more, perhaps than go on. Do explain than my sensibilities. Well, just pr- exactly what you just said. Mm-hmm. It's like bonkers '60s psychedelic. That's not really my deal. And the music's all weird. I mean, I think as we were watching it, I th- I was shaking my head at the music, and I said it's like video game music from a video game that is like malfunctioning or perhaps it's just video game music from three totally different video games all at the same time did, did we explain uh what the deal is with the music now in a previous i know it's been a while since we recorded uh, so I, like until we got back into the swing of things but if we did then i don't remember at all so uh for my benefit please tell me even if it is again well uh, up until uh the end of season seven the music for Doctor Who was written and recorded before they actually went into production. Oh, okay, okay, yes, that is that. Yes, we did talk about that. So this was composed for a completed episode. Yeah, it was in post production because the they they had this new synthesizer mm. that Dudley Simpson could now use, uh, just him and the synthesizer and he wouldn't have to pay like seven or eight studio musicians and stuff so and plus they could do it after the fact so there'd be you know you could actually compose it to picture so there is actually more music now probably because he can you know record it to a finished picture as opposed to give me a piece that feels like this and maybe one of those little bounce here for chase sequences and the the director would just insert it and now it's actually being specially composed i will say that the whole season is all on the synthesizer, essentially. It does change in later years, but this year mm-hmm. is this. So this might not be my favorite year of uh, <laughs> of music for Doctor Who, because, yeah, I, I was not... I, I mean, I don't always notice the music. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes when I notice it, it's, like, it's because it's good, but not usually. Usually if I'm noticing the music very much, it's not great and that's uh, that was what was happening this time like what is happening although i guess there was there was a little bit of visual what is happening too because you know just looking at like the it just looks like things are leaking out of the walls in the uh axonite ship and just the very organic look which mm-hmm. as i said before is you know i think that's what they were going for and they did a good job with it it's just not something that appeals to me no it's a novel concept i uh i know that um terrence dicks often complained about how outlandish the ideas of bob baker and dave martin were and whenever i watch a, a bristol boys as was their nickname uh story i i now think which parts were written by them and which parts were you know written rewritten by terrence dicks once you realize that okay we can't do that we can't do that we have to rein this in um because i i i don't know if there's like a standard trope in bob baker dave martin story so i don't know uh i don't know what um what what we're watching in the in the way of of writers because Darren Stick certainly never took credit for uh, like any big giant like page one rewrites like they would nowadays. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, it's still it's still interesting. Uh-huh. Um, I now understand why Bill Filer has such a terrible haircut. <laughs> yep. So that his double Alan Chunts can wear uh, an adequate wig in their fight scene. Yep. 
Yep. And it actually worked. Like I, I was very impressed by that. Uh, you know, I was still bored, but I was still impressed <laughs> by that, by that uh, fight scene. But uh, you know, you don't mean fight yeah, scenes. I just like, at least it was short enough that I didn't, I didn't, I didn't actually get to the stage where I really was bored. Right. I just didn't find it super interesting, but I found it impressive because they did a really good job of cutting around any moment where you might possibly see the face of the stunt double mm-hmm. and like, I couldn't tell which was which from from a distance in some of those in some of those shots because his his hair is really bad. So so even you know like they're both really bad. They match perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> nice work. I just imagine watching on a you know tiny seventeen inch screen or something, probably black and white, uh, in nineteen seventy one, uh, one time only. You'd probably be reasonably fooled. Oh yeah, for sure, totally. Yeah. Yep. So they they did a they did a nice job with that. Yeah. Um, let's see. What do we have elsewhere? Yes. We have the plot thickening. Now yeah. we know that the master actually brought the ship here uh-huh. in exchange for getting him, you know, his, his freedom and his TARDIS back, uh, with the two, um, requirements. Caveats, if you will. I almost said caveats, but okay. yes. Um, to, they have to, or he's giving them planet earth yeah. and, uh, for the nutrients apparently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in return he wants the doctor killed along with all life on earth but it sounds like all life on earth would have been killed probably anyway by whatever is going on with the axonites you know feeding i believe was was mentioned so mm-hmm. it sounds like they're gonna you know ruin the earth by feeding on life or radiation or something maybe that will become clear clearer later but um thanks master yeah sold us out he's a jerk Master's a jerk yeah, twas ever thus. <laughs> yep, and, and and this is where it starts. Um, and then the uh, Chin is uh, gets the secret what emergency powers act and has the army come in and take over. You know, you know, it's your head of the block, Chin, not mine. That was a, that's a a famous joke from this story. I I did sort of appreciate seeing that. Oh, okay, so he's. He is very much the kind of pompous, like he's a middle manager in a lot of ways where he has enough power that he can boss some people around below him, but really he is completely at the mercy of the people who are above him in the food chain. And uh, so, you know, I I did like that we got to see him sort of be put in his place a little bit. Getting caught, just condescended by the, uh, you know, you know, should you scrabble or shall I? So, so just a report that'll be gobbled enough. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. wow, like that dude, whoever it is, doesn't uh, doesn't think terribly highly of him. Yeah. Like this is just that's just the kind of guy he is. Wow. Yeah, good old good old Mister Chin and uh, Tim Piggott Smith in an early television role as the uh, captain who uh, places Benton and Yates under arrest. You don't know who Tim Piggott Smith is, do you? Um, was he in Midsummer Murders? Oh, was he in? <laughs> well, he was in Mask of Mandragora. I know that for sure. And he he is a he sadly died a couple of years ago. I think. Uh, I, I do remember that that when he passed away, like you pointed out some of the stuff that he was in. So yeah, he's he's been a ton of stuff and is is very well regarded actor. And this was one of his first roles. I can't remember. Maybe he was in Midsummer Murders. We can look it up later. He was uh, a- excellent in a in a film called Bloody Sunday about Bloody Sunday, um, um, which is right behind you on a DVD. Oh. Yes, it's, it's a it's a very very good and depressing film. Hence, me owning it. Um, <laughs> but he was very very good in that as an English general. So, 
But here we see him here, also playing an English general, but he played many varied roles over the course of his acting career, which started more or less here. It, it, he looked familiar, so like his his face is definitely recognizable. He sounded familiar, too, to me, anyway. He had a very distinguished voice. If you're familiar with Mask of Bandrago, which perhaps you are not. Uh, I know I've seen it, but I would not say that I am familiar with it in any way, no. I've seen it many times, and I'm not familiar with it. So that's going to be an interesting <laughs> one when we get to it. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Uh, what else before I get into boring actor stuff and uh, and other things of interest about this story? Uh, I like that the doctor believed Joe and that he was just, uh, you know, basically playing along when they were in the spaceship uh, surrounded by Axonites uh, that the doctor obviously didn't trust. So that was that was a nice moment um, discovering along with Joe that he had believed her all along. Uh, he could have told her a little sooner, but. Well, that was the first time, first chance he had was when they were in the unit van again, really. Yeah, I suppose he, ne- he wouldn't necessarily want to do it in front of somebody else. Like the brigadier, even? Well, I mean, I bet he could in front of the brigadier. That's probably true, yeah. Yep. Um, oh, there's something else. that's going. Oh, the uh, the crazy little eyeball uh, hanging from the uh, ceiling that talks oh, yeah. to everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that reminded me of something, and I can't quite place what it reminds me of. Um was it like the flight of the navigator or something? Did that have like an eye or something? I don't know. There's, it might have. I, I feel like there are probably a lot of things in the history of like visually represented science fiction that have eyes on stalks. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to say even like Prisoner Zero from the 11th oh, hour. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Obviously a Claws of Axos throwback. It could, certainly could be. Hundred <laughs> percent is. Uh, I I just like. I mean, as I, as I'm watching that scene, this strange eyeball hanging from the ceiling. Uh, you know, the one it's talking sort of like duplicate Bill Filer, who's just sort of standing there catatonic. But it's such a measure of the acting skill of Roger Delgado that he just you know plays it as if he's talking to the the you know head brain of this spaceship. He's like he's giving it his all, but he's not going over the top. I just and I'm made me think about actors and how great they are at what they do yeah you're right that that didn't didn't even occur to me i guess Mm. i'm just i'm used to actors being really good in doctor who and playing against things that aren't there or things that are not what they look like yeah Mm -hmm. that's how they do it um anything else about this that you want to talk about um I don't think so. Oh, I mean, I liked seeing the brigadier. Like, I mean, he was playing it heavy to start with, like That's pulling right. a gun on Mr. Chin and being like, "You can hand that over." Um, sadly, he, that oh lasts, yeah, that's about a minute. Yeah. Yep. But then he and Filer also attack the guard coming in and yeah. manage to escape and and run off and stuff. So this is, this is a good action brig story. Yeah. The brig uh, apologizes to the unconscious captain. I love him so much. Yeah. Oh. You know, he's respectful. Uh, let's see. W- there are a couple people in this um, who we saw for the first time in Doctor Who. Uh, one was Stuart Fell oh. playing the uh, squatty who's standing completely oblivious to the sound of the door opening up behind him and the master coming and then shooting him. And, of course, being Stuart Fell, he fell. He has the greatest name <laughs> for a stuntman ever. I just think it's amazing. I didn't realize this is his first appearance. So, yeah, as soon as, like, you see that shot of the master over his shoulder and you yeah. said, oh, it's Stuart Fell in his first appearance, I was like, okay, well, he's obviously about to yeah. get knocked over. He did quite a very nice flip. What a backflip. He is the 1993 gesture of the year, though, um, according to such powers that be that uh, award these. 
It's on his website. Because uh, he was a jester and a, I think he's a fire eater too, I think. Yeah, I know he is a pretty comp. I think he's still alive. Um, but, uh, and he's very diminutive too. So he, flips are easy for him, I think, basically. So he did a big flip. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the driver of the truck who the master hypnotizes is a chap by the name of Nick Hobbs. Do you know who Nick Hobbs is, he said, so I can tell you? He looked really familiar, that guy did, but I don't recognize the name. I don't know if he should look familiar to you. Okay. Uh, we will we will uh, learn about him more as he is the body of Agador uh, cool. in future episodes. Okay, cool. Uh, but also, this is a curious thing. Uh, I will... So Star Wars Rogue One is a story as a film with a crazy production back history that no one is quite sure with all the reshoots and everything that was reshaped and new scenes written. Anyway, uh, I don't know if you remember the movie, but they when there's the scene on I'm trying to have watched it twice and it's been a couple of years. It's the rainy bit and there's like the thing and it's when Mads Mikkelsen gets killed, I think, basically. And there's a bunch of scientists and they get shot and stuff by like the mm-hmm. stormtrooper guys, I think. Anyway, two of the scientists on there, actually maybe the only two scientists, are one Richard Franklin, what? who played Captain Yates, yeah. and Nick Hobbs. The fact that it's those two guys who were in, you know, 70s Doctor Who were cast in like tiny, like literally blink if you miss them. A, I wonder if there were bigger roles and they were just excised in editing because of all the craziness, or B, whoever was casting Rogue One was a classic Doctor Who fan <laughs> and wanted to get a couple of people from Unit in to his Rogue One movie. Wow. I, like, I, I feel like that is a perfectly possible thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I want to see the whole of Rogue One the deleted scenes just to see if uh, Richard <laughs> Franklin and Nick Hobbs are in there. Uh, um, anything, I have one, one other story to say about the original broadcast for me of this one, which was really, really weird. So we watched Terror of the Autons mm-hmm. and Mind of Evil and Doctor New Silurians and Ambassador to Death, which were in our day, back in the 1990s when they're on TV, they were like black and white and 60 millimeter film, right? Mm -hmm. When this one started playing, the first time around that I saw it, maybe not the first time that they aired it, I think it was the second time that that KSPS and Spokane, my PBS station, aired it. Uh, It was the omnibus version, and the first half was on videotape, Mm -hmm. because I could tell such things, of of course, when I was a kid, but it was black and white, and then the last two episodes were color. So th- during the cliffhanger that you see there, the resolution of the cliff, suddenly halfway through the story, the omnibus version, it switched to color. Whoa, yeah. that's bananas. Isn't it bananas? Like That's like Wizard of Oz bananas. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't know why the BBC sent uh, KSPS a weird uh, black and white videotape version when clearly a color version existed for North America. Um, so I always, and they, they didn't repeat it the, the next time it came around, but I always remember that as a, as a weird thing. So that's my own personal history with the Clause of Access. Are you sure that really happened that way? You weren't just on some crazy psychedelic uh, drugs yourself? <laughs> that would be really psychedelic if I thought that those two episodes <laughs> existed in black and white, because that would be like weird. So no, I was not, because I remember such things. I, I, sh- I do you, know to you trust know your memory. This. You know this about me. I remember yeah. these things. And so that was just very, very strange. 
Yeah, this is one of the uh, the few John Pertwee stories actually that only exist in color as NTSC because of the ones they sent over. Because um, I think what the first three seasons of John Pertwee was sent over in 1972. First two seasons, I guess, it would be in 1972, and that's why you get some of the color versions came from there. And it was, it was three because they were sent over because this one, the sea devil, anyway, they had to send it back, and the color wasn't quite right because it was they needed to put it back into PAL, so they had to reverse standards correction and stuff. It was all crazy and stuff. So. People in North America have mostly only ever watched this story in color, but but it still doesn't actually exist in color on in its original format, but it's been converted. Wow. Yeah. Go North America. Woo! Right? Yes, because we recorded things too, because sometimes they match up color uh, recordings, like in The Demons and The Ambassadors of Death, with home video recordings of those 1970s episodes in the United States. And those are the only color original color versions that they have so they could recolor them so thanks nerds Mm -hmm. in the eastern united states in the early 70s for recording doctor who yeah wow go nerds go nerds thank you for putting up with me (laughs) and this type of nerdery in this podcast i i appreciate it it's it's in part why i married you it's the only place i have because warren and chris would be bored by such things and ready for scarrow but you married me and you really have to live with this <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm contractually obligated yeah all right anything else uh i don't think so okay. I'm, I'm looking forward to episode three whenever we get to it i'm you, too i'm too tired tonight i know i know that's fine that's right we uh, they only broadcast these things once a week back in the day and i am more than happy with uh, taking a break in between episodes so i'm looking forward to it too Hurrah. Goodbye. Goodbye.